2: Well, hello, and welcome to another Books of the Year podcast from your friends at Books of the Year.
1: It's so good to be back.
2: Yeah, I mean, we weren't away for very no, long. No, 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 that's true. That's we true. were quite productive.
1: Yeah, 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 we had a very, very busy New Year. Was I was a bit poorly. There was a little bit of that, but now we are back.
2: Yeah, uh, I can. I might cough a bit. Right. Now, that can be edited out. Of course. Unless I cough when Linwood Barkley, our guest... Is speaking. Yeah, well, you know. In which case it'll be difficult. But I am already sucking on a vocal zone.
1: Oh, really? Who I have in mind as sponsors
2: for this podcast. Yeah,
1: why are they not sponsoring us? Given the number of times you've mentioned vocal zone, they should really be getting on. I'm on
2: the honey flavour today. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Because the original is a little bit, you know, it's quite strong. Okay. The blackcurrant one is nice, but the honey one is sort of suitable for midday use. Oh, really? Does it say that on the packets? I use Vocal Zone when my throat is struggling.
1: <laughs> Cut that out. I mean, that's got to be worth some kind of money from the uh,
2: sponsors. No, yeah, you would think you can actually follow them on Twitter, okay. and I and I and I do follow them, and they kind of barely bother. You yeah. you follow a cough pastel on on yeah. Twitter? Great. You'd be amazed what the cough pastel. <laughs> I follow museums and art galleries as well. Really?
1: <clears throat> yeah. I, I assume, though, they put out decent content, do they? they put... Yeah,
2: they just put out pictures of pictures, their yeah.
1: uh, exhibits. OK, and what are the cough pastels doing? Lo-
2: really loads know. of bants about coughs. They don't do anything, really. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> it's a nice flavour. <clears throat> it's a nice flavour flavour. <clears throat> you can always get in touch with us, and we like to hear from you, Books of the Year, at yahoo.com. June Richardson. I have just finished SAS by Ben McIntyre, who was a guest. Yes. Which once again puts him in the category of one of our greatest historical writers. Agreed. What greater endorsement can there be than to actually work alongside the SAS Regimental Association and be the first to access the diaries and records? I always get more out of a factual book if it is character-led, and my goodness, this book is full of large characters. At the end, there is a short chapter on where are they now? This is a huge gap, a person uh, a person missing, and it may be just... Have I made no sense of that? No, no. Saying... There's a huge gap, a person missing, and it may be just she She just melted into the background. But I have to ask, did Ben ever find out what happened to Norris? So at this point, we have to uh, tell you, June, that uh, Ben isn't always with us in the studio. No, not all the time. You I mean he comes in when we ask him to? Obviously. But I don't know. So, Ben... If you're listening, what happened to Norris? I can't even remember that part of the book. It's such an important book, which uh, introduces the everyday persona, i.e., me, says June, to another vital part of the war effort. I really hope Ben can visit you for a fourth time to discuss SAS Rogue Heroes. If so, please put my question in your archives. Uh, Anyway, thank you for a down to earth book review podcast, which I thoroughly enjoy. Well, that's us, yes. Thank you very much. books of the year, yahoo.com, what else we got? Uh, So John Lamont tweets
1: us to say I recently listened to your episode with Jonathan Friedland, Yes. Uh, thanks so much for putting him on our radar Um, I just finished The Escape Artist and I'm struggling with this, it was a flipping thrilling read
2: Is John struggling with his language or is he struggling with...
1: No, I I think he, yeah, exactly that I think he's struggling to put into words how much of a thrilling read it is, because it, it, I, I mean it's one of the best books I read last year, if not the best book I read last
2: year. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us you can email at any time. Uh, the address is year at yahoo.com. You can tweet us uh, at books of the year. I don't think Elon Musk has taken us off not yet. not
1: yet, no. No, always time. Uh,
2: we're always on Insta because it's all about the grams. It uh, is. at Pickany page. That's pickanypage. page. Anyway, here comes this week's enticing episode. Okay, uh, books of the year. Here comes another one. It's another bestseller from Linwood Barclay. The book is Look Both Ways. Linwood joins us, I believe, from Toronto. Uh, hello to you, sir.
0: Good morning. Well, it's probably afternoon for you or whatever it is, but uh, hello, I'm in Toronto. <laughs> and how and
2: how is it in Toronto? Have you shot any more balloons out, the, out of the <laughs> sky today?
0: Uh, they did one <clears throat> over just... Just inside the U.S. border from Canada yesterday, they shot one on Lake over Lake Huron, not too far from where we used to have a place. And then that was the third one of the weekend. And uh, so it's my theory that I posted on Twitter yesterday was that it's Uncle Martin from the My Favourite Martian show of the early 60s. Mm. I think it's him.
2: Does the thriller writer in you, Lin, when something like that happens, I mean, all of a sudden... What, in- it's ridiculous. In 2023, we're talking about spy balloons being shut out of the sky. Is there part of you that wishes you'd thought of that?
0: Well, not necessarily <clears throat> thought of it, but it certainly does capture the imagination. I mean, what what I was thinking about yesterday was that was sort of the post-shoot down. And if there were some sort of a race between whatever, you know, nation had put it over the, over the U.S. and then the U.S. stories... Scrambling in a hurry to find it first and what is in it that's so important that they have to find it first and maybe it's not anything that anybody's even considered, you know, so your mind starts working that way. It's not so much what got it there. It's what happens after it's dropped
2: right i'm intrigued now i'm just gonna (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah well and maybe we'll never find out linwood maybe we'll never find out but
0: um... i don't know i got a feeling we'll get a hint of it um and i'm sure that the very first one the big balloon that they brought down that they're reverse engineering the the hell out of that one to find out what they can about uh how the chinese are watching and so forth and i'm sure that it's you know i you know I uh, to ha- hate clichés but it's a sort of proverbial tip of the iceberg how many balloons are over other countries you know how many are wandering over england right now and how many are over all sorts of you know the world i would imagine that that these are just the first ones we found out about
2: in fact, it feels like it's, I know this has got nothing to do with your book, but it just it does feel like Vic- Victoriana. It feels like around the world in 80 days that Jules Verne has, <laughs> has come up yes. with some kind of yes. extravagant story whereby we're all spying on each other out of hot air balloons.
0: That's right. And I walked down to the harbour in Toronto the other day and I'm sure I saw a periscope of the Nautilus. <laughs> I mean, positive. Anyway, uh, so
2: it's a different kind of technology that we're talking about for... Uh, for Look Both Ways. Matt, do you want to describe the yes. cover uh, that we're looking at? It's
1: here? a very it's a very dark cover, but that's because the events that we can see depicted on the front cover are, are happening at night. And the, the only colour colour other than black that we can see is blue with a dash of white and red. And we're looking above, we're, we're sort of for a bird's eye view of a car travelling at night and caught in its headlights is a figure running away from the car. And it's clear that the car is chasing... That figure, uh, and then picked out in white at the top, Linwood Barclay, uh, and then in blue, look both ways, uh, with the with the wee epigram between the two of they think as one, they act as one, they kill as one, where, with Stephen King calling him a suspense
2: master. There you point. go. It's a very it's a very busy cover, but it, it, t- t- it tells you um, an awful <laughs> lot about what we're going to be. Uh, discussing uh, in the next few minutes. Now, this is a story, Linwood, that as as you make plain, because you have a little forward uh, here, it, the story kind of begins with your father. Just introduce us to Everett Barclay and, and why this story begins with him.
0: Well, it, you know, I was trying to sort of explain, I mean, that, like this thriller, and I have to say just on the cover, is just as an aside. None of the book takes place at night, but the cover's so good. I thought, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> um, but... But, you know, I thought because this thriller is, is clearly different than the ones that have come before and has more of a sort of techie angle, sort of borders on sci-fi, I felt perhaps the slight explanation was in order. And the first thing I wanted to explain was how I've just always loved cars and have grown up surrounded, grew up as a kid surrounded by car imagery because, and as people will find when they pick up this book, on the title page, there is this beautiful illustration of a 1959 Cadillac that is so precise and so beautiful that you'd think it was a photograph but in fact it's a beautiful airbrushed rendering of a caddy that was drawn by my father who was uh, worked in advertising and was a commercial illustrator he and so back in the 1950s primarily in early 60s over here in north america if you were to look at a car brochure the the the, the car ads in Saturday Evening Post and Life and Look Magazine, all of that. And if you saw an illustration of a car, there was a very good chance that my father drew it. That's what he did. And so, you know, we were always, I mean, when I was, when I was, when I was little, my dad was always buying, for example, these sort of 124th scale model cars, which he just loved, but also kind of often used as reference. And we'd be going to dealers and looking at cars, and you'd be taking all sorts of photographs of them, so that when he did his illustrations, they were, they were, at least, began inaccur- accurately. I mean, that was the joy of illustration, was that you could always exaggerate a car's features. You know, he would draw, if you picture a car from a dead-on profile, and where that rear window comes down and meets the trunk, my dad would blow up a photograph of that car, and he would take an x knife and run it down through the fender, and pull the car apart, and stretch it, and then fill in the gaps with more Fender and so forth, so that when you saw this ad, you had this this overstretched, outsized, you know, kind of version of the real thing. And so, I so I I grew up just loving cars, and and so when it came to uh, you know sort of present day and all this this business of switching or the move towards autonomous vehicles, self driving vehicles, I thought I think that could go horribly wrong and and as someone who loves cars and loves to drive the idea of surrendering mm. control completely to to this vehicle you're in doesn't appeal a lot to me so that was kind of the sort of the beginnings of what would become look both ways did it give
2: <clears throat> you've written many many books many many bestsellers then it must have given you a lot of satisfaction to put some of your father's art in one of your books
0: it oh very much so um, uh, very much so I was thrilled and it, and it was the one of my editor's ideas said what if we use that image and and because you know the, the, the novel is about these sort of futuristic little bubbly cars that are self-driving why do we have an illustration on the title page that my dad did of a 1959 Cadillac well it becomes very relevant to the story um, as to why that particular car is on there I mean to get sort of the broad strokes of what what the book is about. It's it's about an island community, sort of like Martha's Vineyard, that is has become a test community where a big, huge car company that makes these autonomous vehicles has come in and said, look, we'd like everybody to surrender their conventional car to the mainland and we will give everybody one of these self-driving cars to use for a month. And the idea being that if every car on the road is one, You'll never have an accident because they all have a hive mind. They all talk to each other. They all know where each other is. And uh, there's one guy with one beautiful old caddy in his garage that he has uh, he has not surrendered. And uh, and, and it, it may be a good thing, too.
2: So uh, just place this geographically for us, uh, Linwood. We're on Garrett Island... Mm -hmm. um explain you know if we if we were on garrett island with you what would it be like and why why are we there
0: well it's a big island i mean it's big enough to have you know a a sizable town and some little satellite towns and there's an airport and so forth let's say it's very very similar in some ways to to martha's vineyard which is off the coast of massachusetts off from cape cod and and that was kind of my thinking so it's a big enough it's a big enough area that it really is a large community where you where there'd be a, a, a small mall and there would all this stuff. But it's still cut off. So it's still, if you want to get to the mainland, if you want to go to Boston, then you've got to drive and get on a massive ferry and get taken across to get to it. So there's a sense of if something were to go wrong and if, say, the island were to be sh- shrouded in fog one day, whatever, it's really going to be hard to get away. And that... When I started thinking about this book, that became critical to me. At one point, I was thinking about setting the book in some, you know, mainland sort of community. And I thought it's, that, that it didn't work for me because I needed this sense of containment of a place that that, first of all, would be a great place to run an experiment, uh, you know, sort of technological one, but was also be a place where if things went horribly wrong, it would be very difficult to get away.
1: You've you've touched on things going wrong, uh, Linwood, and given it's on the front of the book, they think as one, they act as one, they kill as one. I think we can dig a little deeper into what what is yeah. what is going wrong with these with these self-driving cars.
0: Yeah, so as I said, uh, you know, I, I, and every time there's a story in the news anywhere about self-driving cars running amok, uh, everyone emails it to me, and I'm thinking, well, this is great, but the book's done. <laughs> but it's really very interested to read the story just the same but i thought what would what would happen if you know they the, the, the cars this particular car which is called an arrival made by the arrival corporation and these cars are programmed in a sense sort of they have a kind of underlying uh philosophy which is to do no harm so you know we're going to be we're going to drive carefully. We're not going to run people over. We're going to be very cautious. That's the, all geared into the programming. And what if there were a virus that got introduced into this whole network for these vehicles, which basically turned that principle upside down, and instead it was instead of doing no harm, it was basically do as much as you can. And so what happens when this virus is introduced into this the system? on this huge media day to to show off how you know this brave new world of these new cars this virus gets into the system and all the cars suddenly essentially become homicidal it would be like being trapped on an island with a thousand christines and and so that's that's kind of the is how things go go terribly wrong is this kind of is it industrial sabotage what is it is it just a glitch but all the cars are suddenly have just Adapted the absolute opposite of their sort of the programming that is instilled in them,
1: and obviously mayhem ensues. Uh, Linwood, and we, as a reader, yes. we, we have enormous Much mayhem, <laughs> enormous <laughs> fun, enormous fun following that mayhem. And it reminded me—it's part of the reason I, I enjoy your books. I remember reading Elevator Pitch, and I had the same thought as I was reading that one, which is—and um, I'm yet again going to quote from uh, West Wing, uh, which is one of my favorite TV shows in which, and again, I'm going to forget the name of the character, but one of the characters basically says, the thing that keeps me up at night is not the nuclear bomb in Times Square it's the 99, 99 cent things going wrong. When something that you absolutely rely on that is always going to be the same, the mundane things of life, when they go wrong, that's what you should really worry about. Now, I think in in the West Wing, he's, he's referring to uh, beef burgers or something like that. But obviously, <laughs> with, with Elevator Pitch, we were talking about people being killed by elevators. And with this, it's being killed just by something that we just assume everything's going to be all right. Is that at the heart of what you're wanting to do with these books? Take something that we all rely on, that we all think is wonderfully benign and is always going to be on our side, and turn it on its head.
0: Yeah, very much so. I mean, as you say, you referenced Elevator Pitch, uh, which was about a guy who was uh, finding a unique way, kind of a different kind of serial killer who was wiping out people in Manhattan by sabotaging elevators. And I'd like to think that that book did uh, for elevators what Psycho did for showers, to take (laughs) something that you use every day and never even think about and suddenly turn it into something very menacing. And I love that idea, that concept. I mean, there are plenty of thrillers about, oh my God, you know, there's a nuclear bomb on loose we gotta find and all sorts of these sort of overblown, no pun intended, sort of mass things, but it is the little things that I think scare us, whether it's, you know, bugs in the house or not, you know, like the creepy crawly kind or, or, or a car, a simple car is taking those in and, and somehow embodying them with, with evil. You know, I often, I I've often described, um, look both ways as, and in some ways the model for it for me in my head was, I thought, think Jurassic Park. But instead of dinosaurs, it's self-driving cars. Oh, you man. are on an island and you cannot get away and you are surrounded by these things that are out to get you. And yeah, so I do, I think that there's, um, we have a tendency a lot of times with thrillers to really think huge and globally and it's, it's some sort of massive catastrophe. And uh, But even when you do stories like that, you find the only way that you can really get into them is by narrowing the focus down to how, you know, a couple of people say that we identify with come to deal with it. And, and you know, I've said for a long time that kind of other, the other the sort of other thrillers that I have written, um, you know, uh, we may worry about global warming and we worry about who's flying those balloons all over the place. But the things that keep us up at night are, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning and my daughter's not home. You know, like, why Why is she not here and that or or it's, you know, four o'clock in the morning and it's like, am I going to lose my job? You know, they're laying everybody off. If we do, are we going to be able to survive? How are we going to pay for the mortgage? Those are the kinds of things that scare people. And they're the kinds of things that I like to tap into.
2: I think it would be fair to say also, Linwood, I, mean, I know you, you, you were a journalist before you became a full time. Uh, novelist, I think, on the Toronto Star, is that right? And, um, yes, and so I, I find that fascinating just from a discipline, from a writer's discipline, uh, point of view. But I wonder because you're a satirist as well, it this book is funny, I think, as well, uh, you know, and <laughs> even though it doesn't maybe from the way we described it with cars <laughs> killing yeah. people, uh, it, it's not funny, but it, it put me in mind of a film. A uh, 70s movie called Death Race 2000 oh, yeah. uh, and oh, yeah. uh, where where the idea is to run people over and score points and although that sounds utterly horrific it is also funny um, and is that something that is just you just find comes out in the way you write or do you have to fight it or do you like to put more in I don't know I'm intrigued.
0: Well, it's funny. It's it's kind of it's kind of changed over the years. First of all, I'm always interested when people say that the book is funny, because it has it doesn't occur to me that it's funny. But I think that I do have there's a kind of in the way that I write in the way that I think there's a kind of built-in level of sarcasm and smart smartassery yeah, or something. That, 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 that's, that's kind it. That's <laughs> kind of that's kind of where it comes from, or or a sense of the bizarre. I mean, when I um, I mean for you mentioned the Toronto Star where i where I worked for twenty six some years before leaving taking an early retirement to write books full time, and for the last fourteen years of that, I was writing uh i was a columnist i was I, I was allegedly a humor column and and satire and so forth and so on and I always have to say allegedly because it doesn't matter what you you know if you write something in a newspaper um people will just always believe it's true, even if it's the most ridiculously outrageous thing ever. And I mean, very quickly, I mean, one time I wrote about places to send your kids for summer camp and I suggested sending them to the that one time Russian satellite, the Mir Space Station, <laughs> you know, send your kids to send your kids to the Mir Space Station camp. I said, but if you send them, you know, dress them warmly because it's cold in space and send them up with a lot of duct tape because there's holes in the hall of things falling apart. And the guy phoned, I swear to God, a guy phoned the paper the next day. He said he didn't put in a phone number. <laughs> um, <laughs> so. You know, it's like it's, it's sometimes attempts at satire just fall flat because the real events in the world may overtake them because they're even a stranger. But so the first four novels that I wrote were about a character named Zach Walker. And those books were, I would call com- deliberately comic thrillers. They were designed to be sort of funny and outrageous and so forth. And then I switched gears with a book called No Time for Goodbye and then started writing, you know, darker, more serious thrillers. But even in all of those, there have been elements that were funny because I think humor kind of can break the tension for a bit. I mean, you build up all this tension and you can kind of undercut it with something that's that's amusing and then you start building it up again, ratcheting it up. And and in some of the earlier books that I did, um, I when I was really writing a serious thriller, I would get a little too funny and my very wise agent would say, you have to pull this back here because it's, if it reaches the point where it becomes sort of farcical, you will take away from the tension completely. It won't be suspenseful anymore. It'll just become absurd. So it's finding that balance. And I think what I've done in Look Both Ways and in other books is, is, is found that line where you can be funny just enough that you can break the tension and have a bit of a, a nervous laugh, but the book is still is still tense and still a lot of stuff going on.
1: As well as being tense and and as, as Simon puts out funny at times, Linwood, it feels like this is a this is a love letter to cars, and by cars, I mean ones that you drive yourself as opposed to ones that mow you down because of a virus in the system so I, and, and you've already talked about um, your dad and and the, and the job he had with with, oh. with drawing the, drawing those amazing cars, but it, would I be right in thinking that this is a love letter to the kind of car you drive yourself
0: Oh I think so i like I say I just to me, a car is way more than just something to get around in. It's kind of an extension of personality. It's, I mean, if you've got to spend a lot of time in a vehicle going somewhere, I think it should be enjoyable and to be part of that experience. I mean, a car is a kind of extension of yourself because everything that you do, the vehicle responds, and then you have to respond to how the vehicle reacts and so forth. So it's this, it's this, this back and forth between you and the machine that... I I thoroughly enjoy, and so, yeah, I think that, that this is definitely... I mean, it's, it's a love letter to those old big hulking cars from the 50s too, like that 59 Caddy, when cars were, in many ways, just beautiful works of art. Um, you think of the, the 59 Cadillac with that immense... You know, with cars back then, but for this stage where everybody was putting fins on vehicles, and the fins were never bigger than they were on the 1959 Cadillac with these sort of torpedo taillights attached. And the fin came up with this extremely sharp point. And and to give you an idea of how nerdy a kid I was, I think in my seventh grade I was reading, I read a book by the, the noted American consumer advocate Ralph, and politician Ralph Nader, who wrote a book in the 60s called Unsafe at Any Speed. And it was about how the auto industry was ignoring taking steps and spending money to make cars safer. This is what I was reading, grade sub. <laughs> and but what I remember from that book all these years later was how that pointed tail fin on that Cadillac, that people died on it, that motorcyclists who were travelling and then lost control and maybe were thrown off their mic hit those tail fins and they went right through their heart. And I thought, that's just horrifying. And and As a thriller writer, you sort of tuck it away and think, oh that 's so neat and um you know, so so yes i mean i i, I do think you 're right i think this this book is a kind of uh underlying all of it is my appreciation and love for cars uh,
2: i w fascinated Linwood by the impact that lockdown and Covid has had on writers it's obviously impacted everybody to impacted on you impacted on everyone listening to this podcast a lot of the movies and the books that we're getting now are either inflected by uh covid in some way or the publication has been delayed because of covid or you've written twice as many books or uh whatever (laughs) and you said that this book was a bit of a departure and is this in any way due to the fact that our lifestyles changed for two years
0: well, the thing is that Look Both Ways was actually written, I think I wrote this book four years ago, and, and I had this idea to, for it that I really, and in fact, I wrote it first as an original screenplay. I just wanted to take my hand at writing a screenplay, and so I wrote this as a, as a movie first, uh, probably f- almost five years ago, and then decided, uh, you know, like, trying to get a movie made is just is like trying to win the lottery. I thought I have a I have a background in writing books. I have a better chance of having this come out as a novel. So I rewrote it as a novel. So this was I was completely finished this book by the by I would say the fall of 2019. So it's completely pre-pandemic. The pandemic has more has surfaced in um, more recent books. Uh, It's referenced. It plays a role in actually. To some degree, uh, post-pandemic, in a, my book that comes out later this year called *The Lie Maker*, um, has more to do is references the pandemic. I know that um, a lot of writers have been sort of struggling with, well, do we do we pretend it didn't happen? Do we just set every book from now on in 2019, or what do we do? And I just figured, let's just let's just uh, accept it, and you know, we, it's it was a global event. You know, we don't pretend World War II didn't happen. We don't pretend all these other great massive things did not happen. So it happened, and it will find its way. I mean, my it, even if your book is not about the pandemic, it may reference it. I had was lucky enough to be able to read um, a Stephen King has a book coming out in September called Holly, which is uh, based on his character Holly Gibney, who appears in The Outsider, and uh let it bleed and uh there's another one um in uh the mr mercedes trilogy and the pandemic is all through this that book it's not about the pandemic but it takes place in it sort of as it's been going on for about a year and a half so people are wearing masks people are being careful people talk about well, are you vaxxed before i come into your house so it's just there it's sort of mm. it's a slice of, it's this book takes place in a kind of slice of time and uh but it didn't for me, it didn't really affect how I worked. I mean, you know, authors lead very sort of solitary, lonely, sad existences anyway. And, um, you know, we don't, we, I work from home and I'm still working from home through a pandemic. So I think what I missed in the pandemic was because writing a book is such an isolating kind of a job, when you finally do a book tour, you, see, you meet people. <laughs> yeah. You know, you get to sign books, people get to come up to you face to face and say, Oh, I really liked your book about this or that other one. I thought when it was terrible, people can tell you that right to your face. You get their germs as
2: well, Linwood. You get their germs.
0: Well, there's that, but you know, and but uh, that's there's so there's not a lot of opportunity to get out there when you when you're a writer except tours and events, and so that was uh, I missed that.
1: So the the premise for this book, obviously, Linwood, is the self-driving cars are out to kill you and and, and all of that. Oh. And you've spoken about how much you love cars. I wonder whether I could put a sort of contrary view, which would be that I, I wonder whether in 200 years from now we're going to look back at our use of cars. And, and in particular, not just, you know, because of the impact it's had on the environment but also you know the number of deaths caused by cars are we, are we going to look back on on this this clear obsession we've had for the last 50 years with all of us having a car and wonder what on earth was going on there maybe not our generation but perhaps generations in the future
0: well I think that first of all you're wonderfully optimistic that you think we'll all be here in 200 years <laughs> yeah oh dear it's, you know, you know <laughs> I mean, I don't know, sure I sh- I'm not sure I share your, your wondrous optimism there, but I don't know. I think that, I don't really think that necessarily. I mean, I think that we have the potential in the future to have vehicles that are, are less polluting and are, more, are kinder to the environment. And so we're working through a stage. People are, you know, whether it's 100 years from now, 200 years from now, presumably people will still want to move from one place to another. And they're going to have to do it somehow, whether it's through rail or whether they fly or whether, and all, pretty much all of those, every mode of transportation impacts the environment in one way or another. Even if it's, you know, light rail that doesn't pollute, you've still got to lay down those tracks and carve out a path through the landscape. So I'm not so sure that that's what would be the case. I think it's more likely in 200 years, we'll look back, we would look back nostalgically and think, boy, I wish I could have a Miata today, you know, and nip around and drive past all the completely destroyed landscape after the aliens got to us. I don't know. know,
2: The aliens arrived in the balloons. That's what we'll
0: discover. That's right. The aliens came in big, massive balloons and killed all of us. But, boy, I wish I still had that Ford, you know?
2: (laughs) Sylvia Carmichael, one of our listeners, uh, Simon and Matt, I wish I had discovered Linwood Barkley years ago. I have just started reading too close to home. I can't put it down. We'll have to go back and read all of his books in order now, and we'll be up until the wee small hours reading, no doubt. Is there an order that people should read in, Linwood? The only
0: time I think it really matters about reading the books in order, perhaps, is, um, well, No, No Time for Goodbye, which was a big hit breakout book for me. I did write a sequel to that seven years later called No Safe House. So you might want to read No Time for Goodbye before No Safe House. And then I did write what I would call the, uh, uh, referred to as the Promise Falls Trilogy, which was three novels which basically encompassed one big story. And those three books, in order, are uh, Broken Promise, Far From True, and The 23. I think those are definitely books that you would want to read in order. But all of the others pretty much are are standalones. I mean, the very first four novels I wrote, the sort of comic thrillers about Zack Walker, I think they're kind of interesting to read in order because there's a kind of evolution to the character, um, and they do kind of kind of go in a sequence. But even those aren't necessarily critical. But I think of all of them as the Promise False trilogy that you'd want to read, okay. read in order. Rest. Jump in wherever you want.
2: Um, Rob W says, lead child's reacher, Michael Connelly's Bosch, uh, making successful transitions to the small screen. Are there studios or producers adapting any of your books? And then Rob says, I'm currently reading, take your breath away.
0: So there's always, well, first of all, two things have been made, um, in, but you know, a lot of people may not have seen them. Uh, my novel, The Accident was made into a six part TV series in France. And I think they did a really nice job of it. They really stuck to the story, and uh, and I think they did. I think it's a good. I think it's a good good show. Um, My novel never saw it coming. I wrote a screen adaptation. I wrote a script for that, and that got made in Canada. But I don't think it's never really broken out beyond Canada. But it's it was. uh, We got Eric Roberts is in it, and Emily Hampshire, who people may know uh from schitt's creek who uh stevie i think her name was who ran the motel who was the manager she stayed star in it and i wrote this i wrote the screenplay for that and a friend of mine gail harvey directed it and it was made here in canada and i think they did a really nice job of that um and so and the other ones there have been you know the the the, the premise for all's trilogy that i mentioned that was in development for almost five years and i was attached to it i was wrote umpteen drafts of the pilot episode and how it would go together and then that finally died and and then there have been two attempts to make trust your eyes to bring that forward the first was uh Todd Phillips who made the Joker was assigned as director there was going to be a movie and then it wasn't and then Martin Campbell who directed two of the Bond movies and other things directed Casino Royale he wanted to make it into a six-part series and wanted me to write all the episodes the producer did and i worked on that for the better part of a year and then that died <laughs> and it's just you know what a dispiriting it's, just like, world. <laughs> it's like it's like i mean i spent and the last couple of years i wrote an adaptation for my novel *Through the worst which you know there was a lot of interest in um jason Priestley wanted to do it uh you know and so forth so but what i've learned is that when you have a book contract, the book comes out, which is really not the way things work in the movie business. You know, so much time is spent and energy is spent on trying to get something made, and there are so many moving pieces like, can we get a director? Can we get the money? This guy wants to be the star now, he doesn't want to be the star you know, or somebody else making a movie like this. Like, it just is so... The the, the people who represent me in, in L.A. for options have said, it's a miracle anything ever gets made. And I understand that now. And the idea of actual, actual script writing, screenwriting, I love it. I just love it. You know, you just kind of... It's distilling a book to its essence. You just, here's what people are doing, and here's what they're saying. And there's no backstory. There's no, you know, inner monologue. And it's, it's just so... Is so sort of pure, and I love it. But it's the all the other stuff of nine hundred people weighing in and think. Well, I think it needs this, and I think it needs this. And then, you know, they say we really think we should do this, and so you rewrite it, and then you, it comes back to them, and they think, Oh, you know what? I think it was better the first way. Maybe we shouldn't <laughs> yeah. have done that. And then you, no, seriously, I had that last year, and and that's when I was working on a project for which I was had agreed to do for on spec for a while. And when that happened, I said, I'm oh, no, I'm done. You know, I don't understand. And and so, it's the actual work of it, I really enjoy. But there's so much else about it that I don't. And so, if there are... I mean, I have a, a couple of things right now that are optioned. Um, and another one that people are kind of sniffing around and curious about. And will they happen? I don't know. I mean, I tend no longer to get... When I first started doing this, I mean, going back to like 2004, when my first novel came out first novel came out and the, some producers said they were really interested in it i thought well i guess we should go out and buy that mercedes today <laughs> you know and 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 nothing came of it and so i've learned now that when people want to option something it's like yeah whatever fine i mean if it's actually can i, if I can sit down one day and call it up on you know a streaming service on netflix or go to a theater and see it i'll get excited but until then, it's like, you know, I, I refer optioning. I think of it as reserving a book at the library that you never pick up. So you just put this book on hold. But, yeah, know, I'm not going. It's too much trouble to go down there and get it.
2: OK, well, in which case, I'm not going to ask you. Uh, we're out of time. Any, uh, what, uh, ask you about what <laughs> what's going to happen to your look both ways screenplay where this story uh, began. but anyway, so maybe in maybe at some stage in the future, we will log on to a streaming service and we will be able to see your original screenplay happening in front of us.
0: You know, I don't know. And if somebody wanted to make it, I would be totally happy for someone else to do the screenplay at this point. you know, like and and, and you know you could do so many things with the with the ideas and the notions in this book that would probably be even more fantastical on a screen. And I'm saying let let them go ahead and yeah. do it.
2: Uh, Linwood Barclay, we'll be talking to you again with our uh, Q&A, which will be out in a few days' time. But for the moment, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today.
0: It was a pleasure. Thanks, guys.
1: ACAS powers the world's best podcasts.